Today we're going to be resuming our series on Mark's Gospel. We have been working our way through Mark off and on over the last several years. And while that might seem like a long time, in fact, it's not. By way of comparison, consider the precedent of George Petter. For several decades in the 17th century, he was the pastor at the tiny village of Breed in Sussex County, England. Reverend Petter put it to himself to preach through the Gospel of Mark for the spiritual nourishment of his church. Sermon series began on the 7th of June, 1618, and it concluded much later on the 28th of May, 1643. <laughs> now, math is not my long suit, but that's about 25 years, and it means that Reverend Petter would have had approximately seven to eight sermons to work on the passage that we're exploring today. Much to your dismay, no doubt, we are not going to take our cue from Reverend Petter. In fact, this morning we're actually entering into our home stretch in the series of Mark. We're going to pick off where we left up before Advent as we migrate through chapters 14 to the end at chapter 16, and that's going to lead us to Easter where we will finish exactly where Mark concludes at the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Can I get an amen? Speaking of chapters 14 through 16, let me briefly set the stage These final portions of Mark give us an account of the passion of Christ, namely the arrest, the farcical trial, the unjust condemnation, and the execution of Jesus. But that is not where things end, of course. However, it is what we have to pass through on the way to Easter. And so our passage today, Mark 14, those first verses, marks the start of this solemn and sorrowful journey. But along the way, we're going to encounter a series of wonderful and moving events, and some of them are right here in chapter 14, and in fact, one of them is today's portion of the text. To say the least, this is an incredible story. You could actually preach about it for seven to eight Sundays. It's a story that should never be ignored, which is what Jesus himself says in verse 9. That's why the same event is recorded in John chapter 12 and also in Matthew chapter 26. Why is that? Why is this story recorded so much? Because the breathtaking episode in these verses orients us towards the energizing core of Christian life. The woman in this, in this text is not just on board with Jesus. She's not simply a dutiful follower of Jesus. She is a picture of lavish and loyal love for Christ, love and commitment that holds nothing back, passion and zeal that refuses to be muted. That's the pulse of Christian life. And let me just say, La La Land ain't got nothing on this, nor does Nicholas Sparks' notebook. For those of you of an older generation, I know you all think Ryan Gosling is handsome. (laughs) As you know by now, Mark is not merely a historian. He's also a teacher. He's a church planning pastor, and he's here to teach us something this morning. It can be put this way. This story is for you and me, everyone who would know Jesus. And I think that is why the woman's name is intentionally left out. We know from John chapter 12 that this faithful female is none other than Mary of Bethany, the sister of Martha and of Lazarus, the one that Jesus raised from the dead. But in Mark, she is nameless. That is not to denigrate her. Rather, I think it serves to elevate her example for all Christians. We don't want to focus on Mary, this woman, as spectators only, saying how sweet and how saintly she is. No, 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 no. Jesus is saying, if you want to see what it means to enter into my reality, to be brought into my reality, look at her. Do what she's doing. And that means, in other words, that faithfulness to Jesus does not reduce to duties and obedience, 
It doesn't reduce to liturgies and acts of charity and chastity. It doesn't reduce to church membership, and the list goes on and on. Those are all good and gainful things, things but they are things that must be undergirded by something more, by loyal and lavish love for Jesus, affection and commitment that requites his loyal and lavish love for us. That is the blazing theme of today's passage, and it beams forth by attention to three elements, the situation, the action, and the response. Situation, the action, and the response. Let's give our attention to God's word. If you've got a Bible, feel free to keep it open. I think some of the scriptures will appear on the screen back here. We begin with the situation. Here's what I mean by this. To understand Mark's report of what's happening here, you need to notice the structure of the passage, how the story is situated, literally. What we have here is none other than a tasty Markin sandwich. That's how the scholars put it, though they don't always add the word tasty when they describe that sandwich. Now, Markin's sandwich is a story within a story. It's where Mark is saying one thing, and then right in the midst of it, he inserts something that is seemingly unrelated. And notice the word seemingly there is carefully chosen. That's what happens here. That's the situation. So let's look at the bookends. Verses 1 and 2 say this. It was now two days before the Passover and the Feast of Unleavened Bread, and the chief priests and the scribes were seeking how to arrest Jesus by stealth and to kill him. But they said, but they said not during the feast because there are too many people around. And then look at the end of the passage, verses 10 and 11. Then Judas Iscariot, who was one of the twelve, went to the chief priest in order to betray Jesus. And when they heard about this, they were glad. And they promised to give him money. And they sought an opportunity to betray Jesus. Now, as I mentioned earlier, here in chapter 14, things are beginning to fall apart. Jesus has made enemies. After all, the truth tends to do that. Jesus' prior opposition, from a, prior opposition from a little group of folks called the Pharisees, read about that in chapter 3, chapter 11, chapter 12, his opposition from the Pharisees has metastasized among the powers that be in Jerusalem. And so now the religious establishment in the capital city is looking to make Jesus disappear. They're conniving. Because of the Passover festival, however, there are a lot of people around, and that means it is not an ideal time for getting away with murder. Nonetheless, they're going to try. Then in verses 10 and 11, Judas is introduced. He's one of Jesus' inner ring, and as it turns out, he's just the guy the religious authorities have been looking for. He becomes a defector. He enters into league with the hostile religious establishment in order to take Jesus out. And in the middle of this plot, pun intended, that's for you, Colin May, in the middle of this plot, Mark inserts a vignette, verses 3 through 9, about a woman who anoints Jesus. It's an event that is seemingly unrelated, and so Mark is either a jumbled storyteller or he's brilliant. Let's give him the benefit of the doubt. There's a tasty Markin sandwich on the table here. What's in that sandwich? I'm hungry, are y'all? The point is this. Mark is making an acid contrast between the devotion of an unnamed woman, an outsider in many senses, and the treachery of religious insiders, and especially of an insider. Someone who allegedly carried faith and trust in Jesus. Oh, yes, Judas did have faith in Jesus in some sense. He was part of the crew. He was in the inner ring. He left his former life and went with Jesus. He said the right things. He obeyed. But something was missing. And that something is precisely what we see in the woman here. That's what Mark is putting on the table for us right now. What is that? Lavish and loyal love towards Jesus, the presence of which makes all the difference with regards to our faithfulness as his followers. I mean, just look at the contrast between this 
this woman and the Pharisee. They both make a sacrifice of faith, but while she makes an exemplary sacrifice in faith, Judas sacrifices faith itself. Friends, that is precisely what we will do if our faith becomes devoid of lavish and loyal love and affection for Jesus, the type that is displayed right here in this sandwich. We live out of our hearts, and if we become cool towards Jesus, we can play the part of Judas, not in the same sinister, conniving way, but we can sell out Christ in ways that are equally as serious. But it does not have to be that way. To quote one elder preacher, a guy called Dick Lucas over in the UK, we shall never betray our master if we, if we maintain our personal devotion to Jesus and do what that devotion demands. That's the situation. But Mark's big point shines forth all the more brightly and radiantly when we look at the action. It all begins when a woman walks into a room. Look with me at verses 3 through 5. And while Jesus was at Bethany in the house of Simon the leper, as he sat at the table, a woman came in with a flask of ointment of pure nard, very costly, and she broke the flask and poured it over his head. And there were some who said to themselves indignantly, why was that ointment wasted? That ointment might have been sold for more than 300 denarii and given to the poor. And they reproached her. As with many other pious Jews at this time, Jesus has come up to Jerusalem for the Passover. This will be the last time he does that. And given that Jesus is not really a Fairmont guy, he's camping out with some dear friends of his out in Burnaby. And the host is a guy called Simon the leper. And yes, it is safe to assume that he was a recovered leper. Otherwise, they probably would not have been in his house. From John's gospel, we also know that this household was the household of Mary and Martha and their brother Lazarus. Seems that Simon may have been their father or cousin or some other family member. That's what the scholars surmise. This is where Jesus is, and at this moment, he's in the dining room reclining for supper with his crew. And then the action starts. Mary, that's the woman that Mark is writing about here, she comes into the room. She brings in some nard. Nard was a perfume-like ointment, and during this time, it was common to apply it to the body at banquets. You need to remember that all this is taking place in a hot climate, and in a time and a period before deodorant, and daily showers and toothpaste. Everybody smelled bad. And just like us, they couldn't handle it. They didn't like B.O. any more than we do. And so they used nard. You dab it on your head, you get enveloped in a protective shield and aroma. There, we can have a nice, pleasant meal. We're not going to vomit when we smell each other. <laughs> now, from one angle, this woman is tapping into that custom. But the way she does it, how she does it, is so startling. She gets rebuked by the people who are watching. The word translated indignant in verse 4 literally means snorting through the nostrils like an angry, irate animal. Now, in, in social historical context, this is a scandalous action. It is outrageous. It is even shameful on so many levels. Let me break this down for you. To begin with, there's a breach of etiquette. Jewish male fellowship, this is what the commentators say, Jewish male fellowship was not to be interrupted by women unless they were serving food. Well, that taboo gets trampled. Not that Jesus himself ever cared that much about these taboos. And then there's the gift and the gesture. It's extravagant beyond all imagining. Nard ain't cheap. It came from India. This is not some generic fragrance, some knockoff of CK1. By modern comparison, I think it would be on par with Sex Panther Cologne as it was used by Ron Burgundy. <laughs> Mucho dinero. More poetically, as Charles Spurgeon beautifully writes, he says it's something... It's like something distilled from myriads of roses 
of which it needs leagues of gardens, but to make a drop. How well put. For that very reason, people use nard the way that I use dish soap and shampoo. You add water so that it lasts longer. Verse 3, however, tells us that this nard is not diluted. It's pure. And that means it's worth a small fortune. Probably it may have been a family heirloom, given that Mary was not a woman of fabulous wealth. One commentator says it may have been the financial security of the family, their insurance policy against invasion or famine, both of which were real and present threats at this time. And for that very reason, when this woman comes into the room, everyone assumes she's going to give Jesus a few drops. But he gets it all. She breaks the container. Verse 3. Probably that means she shattered it. Nard tended to be packaged in sort of a, what they call a globular flask with a neck. So it meant she probably snapped the neck so that she could get all of it out. And that neck was made of alabaster, which is also quite precious. These objects are not just sentimental. They're insanely valuable. And, and it's all given in totality. It's all for you, Jesus. I'm not saving any for another day or any for another occasion or another person. The last part of verse 3 tells us she poured it over his head, just like the video we saw. She lavished the whole bottle on him, in fact, all over him. We know from John's gospel, which talks about this same event, that Jesus' feet got anointed too. But as the fragrance increases around the room, so does the temperature. People get mad. Verse 4 tells us what they're thinking. If you wanted to use all the nard, there are better ways to use it. For example, you could have sold it and applied the proceeds to the benefit of the poor. Very sensible idea. The nard, a bottle of nard like this, was worth about uh, the, the same as annual la- an annual wage for a laborer. And that is enough to feed about 7,500 people a meal. It's pretty valuable. And so the people in the room, they say, why didn't you do that? You've been wasteful. Where's your sense of proportion? Scold, scold. Truth, however, her sense of proportion is spot on. That's what we get when Jesus himself chimes in. Back off, fools. Actually, this is how Jesus puts it in verse 6. But Jesus said, leave her alone. Why do you trouble her? She has done a beautiful thing to me. Jesus' speech act in this this verse demands a total reassessment of the entire situation. For everyone in the room, probably for many of us, at least for me, because I can relate to the grumbling in verse 4 and 5. But that grumbling can't have the last word because Jesus gets the last word he's spoken here. So what is it about this woman's actions that is so commendable? What do we need to see here? Let me try to unpack this for you. Everyone else in the room thinks that the woman has lost all sense of proportion, but in truth, her sense of proportion is right on. To echo Charles Spurgeon, this holy woman knew more about our Lord than all his disciples put together and everybody else in that room. It comes to this, if Jesus is the Messiah, if he is Emmanuel, if he is God with us, then it's inappropriate to follow him conditionally. She gets this. The entire flask of nard is dispensed. I will follow you, Jesus, and I will not be conditioned by cost. This is not 10%. She's all in. But there's even something more to perceive in this action. Nobody asked her to do it. Jesus didn't command it. The disciples sure as heck did not invite it. And so the glory of her action lays also in the spontaneous suggestion of her heart to do something which should be all for Jesus. This is about desire, blazing desire for Christ that will not be toned down, desire that will not get a hold of itself. This is not middle-class spirituality. 
it comes to this. Mary is challenging the limits of giving up for Jesus. In verse 9, Jesus says, pay attention to it. Our hearts should crave to know how to imitate this woman. Do they? Will we let them? Will you jump in? Hey, I'm on the edge of the pool with you. I'll jump in with you. I need to jump in again, to be honest. Will we jump in all the way? People of God, when it comes to giving up for Jesus, our limits can subtly creep in, and we need to see this so we don't respond like the grumblers on the one hand, so we don't end up like Judas on the other hand. What about these limits? What do they look like? Well, we can give up our money, for example. We can give up our things for Jesus, and then we can think we've gone all the way with him. We can give up our control. We can come to a place where we say in earnest, I'll obey you, Lord, no matter what you say or no matter what you send, no matter what the losses. We can get to that place. Yet even in the midst of great commitments like that, there's still something we can hold back. You don't have to like it. We can hold back our emotions and our affections and our heart. Jesus can be the object of our reverence, of our obedience, but not our delight, not our joy. And that's what sets us apart from the woman here in Mark 14. This woman is not just giving Jesus what she possesses or her control. She is giving him everything that she is, and she's enjoying it. She is loving, loving him. Not just her volition, also her delight. Take my gold and silver, take my will, take my love, and rebuild my identity around yourself, Jesus. That's what she's saying, and how starkly that contrasts with Judas in verses 10 and 11. You see, in the end, there are only two options, selling out Jesus or being sold out for him. That's Mark's point. This is what Jesus is after, and this response is proportional to who he is. And where faith like this continues to be displayed, beautiful things will result, just like that beautiful fragrance that filled this ancient room in Mark 14. That's what happens when we're sold out for Jesus, when we don't try to use him but let him use us, when we stop caring what other people think and focus instead on what he thinks. I realize there's a lot of intensity here. Some of you may be feeling a little bit overwhelmed, even weary, which is why you're falling asleep right now, but I need you to wake back up. Stay with us. I know a woman like the woman in this story. I met her in July when I started helping out at Emmanuel Anglican Church on the east side on Sunday afternoons, they've been without a pastor temporarily, though Lloyd's coming to be their pastor in a few weeks. This woman's name is Sally, and it was only some months after meeting her that I learned that she was the Alpha Ambassador. That was her job. At least that was her concluding position with Alpha. In fact, the story began some years back when she had an encounter with Jesus, and he led her out of the New Age spirituality movement, and he brought her healing and hope after the dissolution of her marriage. And in the midst of that experience, Sally found herself wanting, I would even say needing, to share Christ with friends and neighbors and colleagues and really everyone that she comes into contact with. Along the way, in the middle of all this, she got exposed to Alpha, but at that time, Alpha didn't yet exist in Canada. So Sally decided to change that. She quit her job. She had a good job, very promising and well-established career. She quit that and she applied what she had. Same words from the passage. She applied what she had to introduce to Alpha around Canada. And what she had was a house that was her takeaway from the divorce. And she applied all the proceeds from its sale to get Alpha going in churches from east to west in Canada. Yes, she did. You better believe there are people who thought she was crazy, people who scolded her. Sally, get a hold of yourself. But Sally was undeterred. Sally is undeterred. And because she went all in for Christ, 
Many, many others have too over the years since Alpha began in this country, and now it's going even further because the new Alpha series for the world, English speaking at least, was largely financed by Alpha Canada. When I heard that story at Sally's retirement party a few weeks ago, my heart was deeply moved. And in the midst of all of that, I heard Jesus. I heard him say, Sally, you have done a beautiful thing for me. Do you hear that? Let me be honest. I'm not always like the woman here in Mark 14. At my best moments, maybe I am, but life is just not, it's not just made up of best moments. Uh, asked my wife yesterday. But I want more. I want to be this woman. I want to be all in. I want to, be, I want to increasingly experience the desire and the affection that she has. I want to indulge it, and I want to crown it with action. I want to spend more time with people like her, people who share this vision. I want this community to embody her example so that when people read Mark 14 and then walk into St. Peter's, they see a synonym, a place of lavish and loyal love for Jesus, a place where we refuse to live as outsiders to God and our own souls, which find their rest and satisfaction in him alone. That's the action. That's the action. Let's wrap up with Jesus' response to it. Glance with me at verses 6 through 9, if you would. But Jesus said, let her alone. Why do you trouble her? For she has done a beautiful thing for me. You will always have the poor with you. And whenever you will, you can do good for the poor. But you won't always have me. She's done what she could. She has anointed my body beforehand for its burial. Now this, this response reinforces the big theme of the passage. And there are a couple things I want to highlight here. Number one, I want you to notice that Jesus' rebuke in these, in, in these verses is addressed to all the people in the room. The indignant ones, as verse 4 puts it. In John's report of this same incident, Judas himself is named. He's the one that Jesus rebukes, but not here. Why do you think that is? Why does Mark not single out Judas? It's a good question. If I were to hazard a guess, here's what I'd argue. Mark never covers up for the 12 disciples. He never glosses over their blunderings and failures. Throughout the gospel, he doesn't spare them. So often, they're trying to fit God into their stories and instead of letting God fit them into his story. And as a result, they don't get Jesus. And sometimes they even get in the way of Jesus. Eugene Peterson puts it like this. Jesus said, follow me, and ended up with a lot of losers. And these losers ended up through no virtue, no talent of their own, becoming saints. That's what's happening here. They're all in on it. They're all looking at this woman and saying, what a waste. For God's sake, what is she doing? What irony. Yet according to Jesus, they need to learn what she knows, that love that is not sometimes extravagant is not love at all. And we know this. We know this about love, but we don't always practice it with, towards God. We, we long, everyone here longs for lavish and loyal love in our relationships and dating and friendships and marriage. Well, guess what? So does God. He's, after all, the one who created human relationship as a tangible picture of how we relate to him with love that is lavish and love that is loyal. Second thing to highlight is in verse 7 where Jesus uh, says something that adds to this same point. Now, it sure looks like in verse 7, Jesus is saying, who cares about the poor? Well, not so fast because that dog won't hunt. That's how they say it back in South Carolina. It's easy to misread this verse, but we need to remember that Jesus has a demonstrated track record of commission, uh, committed, passionate concern for the poor. And this is not just Facebook concern. This is hands-in-the-dirt concern. Therefore, what Jesus is saying here assumes 
that the poor are immensely important, not unimportant. And accordingly, for Jesus to take preeminence over the poor means that he is utterly unique in stature and glory. By establishing himself in reference to the poor, it, it just adds weight to what he's saying about himself and his identity. Let me give you an analogy. Uh, by the way, does anyone know who Jim Pattison is? He's the wealthiest man in B.C. Let me give you an analogy. This would be like what Jesus is doing here would be like me saying that Mark Zuckerberg is even wealthier than Jim Pattison. And he is. But that does not mean that Jimmy P. is poor. Jimmy P. ain't poor. Mark Zuckerberg is just fabulously wealthy. The poor matter hugely. Verse 7 only serves to amplify the significance of Jesus, not denigrate the poor. Do you see that? I want you to see that. Jesus' significance is something that needs to be embraced and recognized by all of us. The needs of this world are endless. You know this. They constantly clamor for our attention and for our help, and it is right and good that we should all be engaged and involved. Yet the need for Christ, the spiritual needs of our city, our neighbors, our colleagues, and ourselves always come first, even if the two do go hand in hand. And as those spiritual needs are addressed, so many of the other issues, the ones that clamor for our attention every way, issues of justice and mercy, begin to ameliorate. The greedy man becomes wealthy in Christ and stops exploiting his employees. That's the pattern. It's nothing more than the two great commandments kept in proper order. Love the Lord, and because you love the Lord with your heart and soul and mind, you will love your neighbor. In other words, lavish and loyal love for Christ is the best thing for living a life of service and mercy to others, and especially the poor, just like Jesus lived. But how do we get that? How do we get that? How does Mary's lavish love for Christ get into us, get into our bloodstream? How does her blazing worship become our worship? The answer's in the text. Look at verse 8, this kind of mysterious, enigmatic verse. Jesus says, she has done what she could. She has anointed my body beforehand for the burial. And scholars have spilled a lot of ink over this verse, but Jesus is basically saying that this woman is preparing him for his burial. She's doing a sort of pre-mortal, uh, pre-mortem burial preparation, which is good because it's not going to happen afterwards, as we'll see. This type of anointing was customary at the time. In fact, it was common for a flask with nard or oil to actually be broken when someone was anointed in their burial, and then that flask would be placed in the coffin with them. But there's something different here, something staggering. One commentator puts it like this, what the disciples fail to do, what they fail to even understand, an unnamed woman understands and does. That's why her action is celebrated in verse 9, because she gets the gospel. She's showing herself to be in solidarity with the way of the cross. The 12 disciples don't always really do that. When Jesus told them he was going to die to save the world, Peter said, over my dead body. They wanted things to unfold in another way, in a way that would bypass the cross, but there is no other way, according to God at least. Well, Mary gets this. She knows Jesus is going to be buried. How did she know that? I don't think it was because she had a prophetic insight or some sort of prophetic word. I think it's actually because Mary's a good listener. She actually heard what Jesus said, not what she wanted him to say. There was no motivated cognition on Mary's part. In the Gospels, whenever you meet Mary of Bethany, you'll notice she's sitting at the feet of Jesus. Her sister Martha's always running around taking care of everybody. Where's Mary? She's not being very helpful, but she's listening to Jesus. 
Read about it in Luke 10, John 11. She's listening, she's absorbing, she's reflecting on everything that Jesus says. And as a result, she's ahead of everybody else. She understands what they don't. And so when she comes into this room and anoints Jesus with great intimacy and sacrifice and desire, this is what she's communicating. She's saying this, the only way you could have raised my brother Lazarus from the grave is to bury yourself. The only way you can ultimately interrupt my funeral is to cause your own funeral. I realize it now. It's not simple. You're going, if you're going to give us life, you're going to have to lose yours. I cannot believe the sacrifice you are going to make for me, but I can see it. In spite of all my fears and doubts, I know that God is for me. Of that I am sure, because nothing puts life into people like a dying Savior. Friends, that's what's happening here. That's what Mary perceives, and in perceiving this, she goes all in for Jesus. Jesus' dying love awakens her love and her heart and her desire as she pours herself out for him because she sees him pouring himself out for her. We're undone by him because he was undone for us. That's the source of lavish and loyal love that will change you. It will ensure that your passion is less and less about how you are received by others. Mary didn't seem to care about that. And more and more concerned with the reality that you have been received. And that's why this story is always to accompany the gospel. But the gospel, the glory of the gospel is not what we do for God, but what he does for us. And when we grasp that, we'll begin to become like this woman here. And with her, our lives will epitomize the words of one of my favorite old hymns. Love so amazing, love so divine. Were the whole realm of nature mine, that were a, fres a present far too small. Love so amazing, love so divine, demands my soul, my life, my all. 